That's very good. Uh, hello. There. Hello there, gang. It ain't easy, is it? Bye, George. Here it is. I mean, already another week is shot. You loused it up. Didn't get off the ground. Flumming along there. But it's Friday, see? And Friday... Hey, there's a touch of the reverend here. What's this about? I say, well, of course, yes. The next thing is a cassock. I presume that'll come. So would you please bring it up, Larry? That'll be dark, huh? Hi, George. Did you ever see Death of a Salesman? You did? Well, how do you think a kid growing up in Willie Loman's house thinks about life? I mean, the old man comes home every couple of days, you know, from uh, the road trip to Boston, see, and he says, Boy, do they love me in Boston. They really love me in Boston. Now, I know that the next time I go to Boston, I'm going to get the biggest order that anybody in the New England Territory ever got, and we're going to be on easy street, right? Well, now, how does a kid begin to think if he lives in Willie Loman's house? Now, I'm going to ask you other rhetorical questions. You've seen Hamlet, huh? How do you think the king felt about Hamlet? Has anyone ever done the idea of doing Hamlet from the view of the king? You know, the guy that he winds up murdering? You know that whole thing? I mean, you know, he might have thought this guy was a total idiotic hippie who, you know, was completely... There's talk about a generation gap. I mean, he was not interested at all in letting that uncle do his own thing, and uh, which happens to be, you know, be king and make the scene with his mother and all that stuff. Yeah, that's another story. But uh, no one has ever looked at it from that side that I know of. Now, on the other hand, has anyone... Uh, have you ever thought in terms of how would it... How would you feel, say, for example, being the Bobsy twins' father? Uh, what do you think of these two? I mean, uh, are they are they unbelievably, sickeningly sweet, or uh, or you know, or do you look upon them as really backward, uh, totally backward? Now, uh, as a kid, you see, I grow up in a in a family where my old man could easily have been Willie Loman. Well, he didn't think though that he was going to make it big at the office. He thought he already had made it big at the office, which is very different. And actually, he had, you know, compared to all the rest of the relatives. My Uncle Carl was always out of work, and Marco Carl's whole dream was one day they would increase his uh, relief check. That's what his dream was, that one day he would be able to really fool them that uh, he needed more dough. See, he would go down every week and tell them that uh, his wife is expecting, and all she was expecting was that, you know, he would come home drunk again. That's about it, see. And he thought one day that she would believe, you know, they would believe him at the, at the uh, relief office. That was his dream. My father's dream was winning a contest. He always figured that he would win one of these things. And I can remember all through my childhood, the, the dining room table being covered with uh, cut-out pictures of the president's. You know, the ones that say, uh, cut out these presidents and identify... It would say, cut out these uh, faces and put them together and then identify the sports figure. That kind of stuff. Well, he would always get past the second or the third round. You know, like it says, uh, identify this president, and there would be a picture of Franklin D. Roosevelt. So he'd know that when he'd write it on FDR. Then the next week, he'd cut it out, there's Herbert Hoover. And then what would they do? They'd throw in 
Willard Fillmore. Or they'd throw in you Millard, you know. He'd say, Fillmore, Fillmore. Fillmore. See, automatically he would begin to be shuffed off, sloughed right out. You know, have you have you recognized life yet for what it is, friends? Any of you, seriously? Life is a process of separating the sheep from the goats. Now, it doesn't make any difference what system you live under. It is a process of separating the sheep from the goats, and if you don't think so, you ain't ever been to a, a country that's got another system. You know, if you think, oh, no, under communism, it's not that way. Oh, you think not? Let me tell you, you don't think for one minute that the commissar considers himself in the same boat in life, do you, with the guy that's sweeping out under the shoemaking machine in the factory that he's the commissar of? You bet you're biffy. And so life, you know, it's a system of selecting commissars. I mean, you may have a commissar in your office. You know, old Bullard. He got there, friend, and there was one time he was a mewling, puking babe, just like you. And incidentally, I can use that phrase, mewling, puking babe, on radio. It's official because it is Shakespeare. I've just quoted Shakespeare. <laughs> See, if Shakespeare had this show, he'd probably get away with more than I can get away with. But nevertheless, uh, which is incidentally a comment in itself, but the, nevertheless, life is a system of gradually separating the sheep from the goats. Well, now... The goats don't like to be separated from the sheeps, do they? And they protest loudly and say, if we had another system, that would not happen. We would become sheeps too. Sorry. It's like some vast, specific gravity is working on all of us. Everybody has a different specific gravity, Matt. Some rise to the top, and the others just lay on the bottom like rocks. In other words, your cottage cheese quotient is larger than the next guy's if you don't float. Right? It's the cream that rises to the top, friend. It is the skim milk that lays on the bottom. And what's the difference? Specific gravity. Now, how do you figure out what your specific gravity? You don't lay in the bathtub and holler, Eureka! Or didn't you get that gag? <laughs> you did, didn't you? Why, George Shepard coming up with the classical references tonight. What's he talking about, huh? Well, a poor old Aki Dildock, you are at the bottom of the bottle, if you don't know. I'm going to ask you, who is it who first said Eureka? I mean, and use it in that context, you know, sitting in the bathtub, how is Eureka? It was not Ed McMahon, I'm sorry. Was not, was not Hugh Downs either. Gee, there's a deep thinker. I like how he gets to the meat of a problem. Don't you? It makes me feel good that the world is in charge of people like Walter Cronkite. Now, you know, people really got a grasp of it. It's a kind of a good feeling. Well, well you know, it's just a, it's a, as I say, it rises to the top. See, so the old man always figured, you see, that his proper meteor was the contest. Yeah, he was a competitive type. Com competitive, I'll tell you, so competitive that I remember as a bowler. Now, now, you know, a lot of people just bowl. But then there's people who bowl. 
I mean bold, man. In fact, if my old man was alive today, Matt, for your information, he would be on Channel 7 on Saturday afternoon with the champion bowlers. I'm serious. He, well, can you, how would you like to live in a house who, who's, who, who's the father of the house, has a bowling average, I mean a lifetime, I'm serious, when I tell you this, you're not going to believe it. His lifetime bowling average was 201. You bet he was a good bowler. And I am not lying. As a matter of fact, this is what he did, you see. Unfortunately, bowling doesn't put meat and potatoes on the table. It, in fact, when he, yeah, when he bowled, when you bowl, no, no. This was before ABC's Wide, Wide World of Sports. This was the only time he would, when he would bowl a 245 game, the only guys that would cheer would be Heine Gertz and, and, and you know, Zudok and the whole crowd down at the pinball where he always went, you know. <laughs> Well, actually, no, I, I, to be honest with you, he played, he played on this top bowling team, see? And uh, these, these were, yeah, it was an ace bowling team. They were always in the ABC bowling tournaments. And uh, every year, I don't think I've ever told you about this side of, of my old man's sporting life. Every year, the ABC national tournament would happen. You know, this national tourney? And about six months before that, the old man and his bowling team, which was not the Jackie Gleason-type bowling team, these guys were sponsored by a, a beer. As a matter of fact, it was Pabst Blue Ribbon. Oh, yeah, it was a top bowling, yeah, a top team, see. And so every year, about six months before the ABC tournament, the old man would start hinting, see, at the, uh, at the kitchen table. See, my mother's hanging over the sink, and she's got her hair up in a curl, you know, a whole bit. And the old man would say, well, got the bowling news today. He's got this pink paper that the bowling people all read. It was, a, it was the ABC bowling news. And he's reading this. He says, you know, he says, you know what I have in the tournament this year? Long pregnant pause. And I'm going to say, where? Utah. She'd say, Utah. Yep. That meant we're going to start saving up for the old man's lousy trip to Utah. See? Well... <laughs> Forget anything else in the family, see? So we're going to start putting them where? Well, they go to Salt Lake City, see? So about six months before this thing would start, the old man and his buddies would have to start getting into training. See, they, don't, they don't just go to this thing. They train for it. What does that mean? That means bowling seven nights a week and paying like 45 cents or 50 cents a line. So the old man is bowling night after night after night after night. And every night he'd come home, you see, when he's had a bad night down at the lanes, he would come home and he would take his bowling ball. You could tell, see, he'd take his ball. He carries his bowling ball in his big canvas bag, see, and had his name on it. It said Paps Blue Ribbon on the other side, see, he was on the team. It was like the Yankees, see. So the old man comes home, and he takes this bowling ball, see, and he'd slam it next to the refrigerator. He'd boom, and bang everything. He'd open up the refrigerator, and he'd grab a can of beer. He did not drink Paps Blue Ribbon. He drank a rival beer, you see especially when he was mad. And he would sit down, he'd pop open a can of beer, he'd suck it. It's that damn game. I'm going to give up all. You're supposed to ask him what the trouble is then. Sometimes, you know, he takes his hand, you know, he's rubbing his wrist. He's got this thumb, you know, it's three times larger than a normal thumb, you know, from holding that ball. Yeah, he grew, he was bowling at the age of three, you know, that was his whole life. My brother said, what's the trouble? Oh, my hook's starting to slide. What the hell does this mean to my mother, you know? My hook's starting to slide. 
Is your hook starting to slide? Yeah, my hook's starting to slide. You know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to knock off work early tomorrow, and I have to go down to the lanes. I'm going to have to work. I got... That man, he's going to quit work now to ball, see? <laughs> and she would turn. I wonder how many wives in this land... You know, we always hear about golfing widows. Friends, that ain't nothing like a family that is on relief because of bowling. I wonder how many wives live under the under the onus of the crash of pins. Speaking of Oni, this is WOR in New York. Okay, we have the book Fine People with us here tonight. And uh, the only way, they say, to judge book clubs is by the list of titles. Well, that's logical. The mass book clubs feature books that appeal to the masses, and the book Fine Club seeks out only the best of contemporary fiction and nonfiction, like The Game of the Foxes, Uncommon Sense, Memoirs of Hope by Charles de Gaulle, and so forth. So uh, if you'd like to join the club, you're, they're putting on special inducements now. They'll send you for only $1 plus postage and handling two extraordinary books that will cost about $15 at bookstores. Jean-Francois Ravel's Without Marks or Jesus and lawyer F. Lee Bailey's The Defense Never Rests. That's a dollar apiece if you join the club, of course. So call and find out about it. It's TN71441. And as a book find member, you're obliged to purchase just two more books in a whole year. The number is TN71441. Or send your name and address, no money, to Book Find, WOR, New York. Book Find, WOR, New York. our higher-priced cars to come loaded. But what about our lowest-priced cars? Well, take the Toyota Corolla 1200 sedan. The manufacturer's suggested retail price for this Toyota is just $1,956, plus freight, local taxes, dealer prep, and options. On it, you'll find at no extra cost front disc brakes, white walls, wheel covers, and tinted glass. The interior decor group is already built in. And the exterior chrome trim is already trimming the exterior. The fresh air heater is standard. The reclining bucket seats are standard. The carpeting, armrests, and four-speed transmission are standard. And that's not the high-priced Toyota. That's the low-priced Toyota. Yeah, see your nearby Toyota dealer and see the full line of Toyota sedans, hardtops, and station wagons. Good car, Toyota. I have here a letter that says, uh, I can no longer resist Shepard's incredible salesmanship. I've got to have a bird. <laughs> it's terrible to fall into the bird, uh, the bird syndrome. But if you don't know anything about these birds, Shepard's incredible salesmanship ain't going to sell you one. But uh, they're beautiful. They're, they're 16 inches across. And they were a sensation in Europe, you know, last year. It's the first time they've really been in this country. And they are an ornithopter. They actually fly like a real bird. You just wind up the things, go crank in the back, and she takes off. Comes with uh, separate uh, special rubber bands in case you break one, and they're just great. They have two colors, yellow and red, and they're only three ninety-eight. And I think for that money, they're probably one of the greatest toys around. Certainly the greatest flying bird around. So if you'd like to order one, just send three ninety-eight, and that'll be postage paid. And New York State residents add the tax to Flying Birds. Make your check or money order to Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909, 
Grand Central Station, New York, New York. Now, I, I, I uh, tonight, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to do a show about bowling, but I'm going to do a show about dr- blasted hopes. I'll never forget the time the old man. Now we never heard, we, when he would go off to these tournaments. You see, these tournaments last about a week, as you know, Matt. They go they go to the ABC tournament. They may be in Cleveland. They may be in uh, a place like uh, uh, Salt Lake City or Miami or there. They were usually places like Pittsburgh and so on. Well, they would be gone a week. See, I mean, we wouldn't know what the heck's going on at all. You know, whether the guy bowled good or not, and and the. He didn't really care because, you know, <laughs> he ain't ever... And he would come back from the, one of these big bowling tournaments, and he smelled like smoke. I remember as a kid, he would come in, you'd smell like cigar smoke, and beer, and he'd come back from one of these things, and, you know, it's just fantastic week uh, with the bowling guys. One particular year, I was about 11 when this happened, and uh, I'm walking around. The old man's gone on one of the bowling tournaments, and, and that year it was in Cleveland. Remember specifically it was Cleveland. So when I'm walking around. The old man's gone, and every night I'd come home for supper, and you know the father's not home. This this uh is, 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 it leaves a hole in the house, you know. And I'd come home, my kid brother's sitting there having supper, and one night after supper the phone rings. Well, you know the phone was always ringing in the house. You know it was always Mrs. Bruner, or it was always, you know it was always Mrs. Anderson on the phone. There's somebody calling. So my mother goes to the phone, and she picks it up, and it was this moment. She says, hello? Who? What? Who? And she puts her hand over the door. She says, shut up, you kids. Hello? Who? No, I don't know anything about it. No, I haven't heard anything. He did what? Well, no, I haven't heard from him. Really? Well, well. Well, I, I, when he comes, when he calls, I'll tell him to call. He did. He really did. And she hung up the phone. And she stood there for a moment, this long, pregnant look. And me and the kid brother were looking, see, because telephones are funny things, you know. They can bring good news. They can also bring bad news. And my mother had a blank look on her face. My kid brother instantly starts, you know, kid me, he starts to cry. And I said, what happened, Ma? She says, do you know what your father did? I said, no, what? She says, he bowled a 300 game. <laughs> it was the newspaper. The, the local newspaper was calling to find out about the 300 game and you know what he what he said about it was he there did he have any comments to make he bowled the 300 game at the ABC well you know that's like hitting four grand slam homers in the world series I mean, for years, the old man's bowling had never been taken seriously by anybody you know around the house was just you know the old man goes and bowls that's the end of it in fact, it was considered kind of a drag because he was never home, you see. But now the papers are calling. The phone rings immediately after my mother hangs up, and it's Mrs. Bruner. My mother says, hello? What? No kidding. Really? And she says, hey, Jeannie, turn on the radio. She says, when? Oh, I missed it. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, gee whiz. Holy smokes. She hangs up. She says, they were talking about the 300 game on the radio. 
they announced, you know, on a sports. <laughs> my, my father's name was on the sports, you know, where they talk about the Chicago Cubs, where they talk about the White Sox. They mentioned my, my old man's name. He bowled a 300 game, and we missed it. We didn't hear it. We didn't see the paper, nothing. Well, that night, we must have gotten 50 phone calls. I mean, people everywhere heard about this 300 game. They were calling up. Well, of course, we were celebrities then. You know, I'm walking down the street, seeing guys are saying, hey, I heard about your old man's 300 game. He's still in Cleveland, so he didn't come back. They were still at the ABC. And uh, then I said, oh, yeah, you know, the old man, he, uh, he's a good bowler. Oh, yeah, yeah, he often shows me how to bowl. Oh, yeah, I, I bowled real good myself, you know. <laughs> we ought to go down to George's. And pin but at this point, I had no interest whatsoever in bowling, you know. To me, it was just something the old man did. And now everybody's talking about it. I go to school... And we had this assistant principal who was a total... He, in fact, he was the Eichmann of our school. I mean, he, he really was. He was the hatchet man. And uh, what he did, you see, we had this kindly principal. The kindly principal never did anything except talk in the auditorium sessions, you know, about how the, how the uh, debating team is doing this and that and so on. So you never really had much to do with the principal. He was very official. But this assistant principal was like the Eichmann. Anytime anybody loused up, any time any kid had to get kicked out of school, anytime any kid was, you know, getting the business, you'd go down to see Mr. Rupp. And uh, Mr. Rupp would sit there and he'd cackle, he'd smoke the pipe. I remember the only guy I've ever known who could smoke a pipe at the same time and look like uh, a Machiavelli. You know, you always think a guy's kindly with the pipes. I never do. Every time I see a guy smoking a pipe, I invariably think of Mephistopheles. He's evil. And he's sitting there sucking on a pipe and cackling and, you know, kicking guys out of school for two weeks. Well, I come to school. You know, and I, and this was the day after the 300 game. We have not heard from the old man yet, see? As far as he was concerned, his bowling world was none of our damn business, the way he looked at it, see? So I come to school the next day, and there is a note. I get a note in, in my homeroom that says, Mr. Rupp wants to see you. Mr. Rupp wants to see you. You know, Sir Eichmann wants to talk to you. He wants to send you on a trip. So uh, I, <laughs> I, oh, I'm scared. What did I do? I go down to the office, and I walk in, and I walk up to the girl behind the desk, and I said, Mr. Rupp wants to see me. She says, oh, of course. Mr. Rupp was asking about you this morning. And uh, I said, yeah, I was in school yesterday. I, I, was, I was on time. Said, Mr. Rupp would like to talk to you. So I go in, and there's Mr. Rupp sitting there, and he stands up. I never even talked to this guy. He was a terror. You know, he's a, everybody knew uh, he was uh, tough, but... Uh, you you walked very care, very 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 small around him, and I didn't say much around him. So I walk into his office. He jumps up and he says, "Why, you're Gene Shepard, aren't you?" And I said, "Yes." He says, "Tell me about your father's bowling." He says, "He bowled a three hundred game at the ABC, didn't he?" Why, uh, yeah, he did. Well, I certainly would like to meet him. Why, I would certainly be pleased to meet him, and uh. Does he, does he talk much about... It turns out that old man Rupp was a nutty bowler. And it would be like, it would be like if you were Roger Maris's kid and suddenly discovered that the principal was a Yankee fan, you know, something like that. So he says, uh, say, I certainly would like to meet your father when he comes home from the ABC. Uh, does, does he talk much about... Uh, you know, I'd like to have him help me with my hook. I, you know, the trouble with me is that I never can pick up the spares. I'm okay once I get the ball in the pocket. Well, then I start giving advice. I said, well, of course, what you do, you're probably throwing the ball. and stuff. You're, you're, you're not bowling, you're throwing it. This is something the old man always used to say to us. He said, don't, 
remember, don't throw the ball, bowl the ball. This game is called bowling. Well, the day that my father returned from the ABC was like, it must have been like the return of uh, Hannibal after a successful campaign on the other side of the Alps. The old man comes home, and he is, you know, smells like smoke. He smells like beer. He smells like bourbon. Uh, his, his coat has been torn under the sleeve. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they did on these conventions, but I know that my, old, my, 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 my mother never really asked him. So he comes home with his coat torn and all of it. And he says, the first thing he says, gets out of his car, drives up, runs up the back steps, slams the door open, slides his bowling ball across the floor in the kitchen, slides it under the table, and says, look what I got. And he holds it up. It's a velvet case that snaps open. And in it is a metal. Have you ever seen the metal that is given to a guy that bowls a 300 game in an official ABC tournament? I have. The old man had it. Look at that. Puts it in the kitchen table there, and he right in the middle with the lights on. Look at that. So I bowled a 300 game. And by the way, I might add, it was the third one in his career, but the first in official competition. He says, Look at that. He says, Call Bruner. So my mother calls Mrs. Bruner, and a couple of minutes later, you hear this thumping in the back porch, and Mr. Bruner comes staggering up, totally tanked out of his ears. And he comes in, and he, too, was a bowler, see? This reminds me of Ralph Cramden and those guys. Old man Bruner comes staggering into the kitchen. The old man says, Bruner, look at that. And Bruner says, gee, a 300 game. A 300 game. You've done it. The old man says, look at that. He just looks at that metal. Look at that. And Bruner says, can I touch it? Of course. Bruner picks it up and he puts his hand across it. He fondles it. And we hear a thumping on the back porch. There's a knocking on the door. The old man opens the door and here's Heine Gertz who was also one of my old buddies, uh, beer-drinking, fishing companions. And Heine says, Hey, I hear you pulled a 300 game, you old son of a gun. He hits the old man on the back. The old man says, Heine, look at that. And now Heine, Kurtz, Bruner, the old man, all three of them are looking at the 300 game medal. My mother's standing over there, and she's making some spaghetti now. She knows any time they all come over, you got to make spaghetti. And so she's making spaghetti, and we've already got seven six-packs of beer in the icebox because we knew he was coming home. And so the old man says, let's get Zudok. So he's on the phone. Five minutes later, Zudok is there. Now there's about ten guys in the kitchen, and right in the middle of the kitchen, right on the kitchen table, is a 300-game medal from the ABC, and the lights are shining on it. And they've all got their cans of Pabst. By the way, now they're drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon, see? It's the team beer, see? So all of them got their Pabst Blue Ribbon beer out, and they're all sitting around. And then it happened. This is something which stands alone in my entire 
educational experience. Now, all of us have had experiences as we go through life that are totally unexpected. And yet, because of the unexpectedness of them and because of the majesty of these experiences, we hardly ever talk about them. You know, I suspect we rarely talk about the really big things that have happened to us in our lives. You know, I know a lot of guys that the biggest thing that ever happened to them was, the, let's say, the day they got married. And you know, I rarely hear a guy actually talk about it. He'll talk about some trivial thing that happened to him once. You know, like the time he tried to get this, uh, you know, he tried to get this tire fixed. He'll go on for endless hours about trying to get the tire fixed in Chillicothe, Ohio. The biggest thing that ever happened to him, see? And uh, you say, hey, Fred, tell me about the time that you got married to Irma. He looked at you like you're out of your mind. And yet that's the real event that happened in his life. Because, you know, Irma turned out to be a fantastic monster. She broke his arm in three places one time. So it must have been a big moment, see? So here's Zudok. Here's Heine. Here's Bruner, drunk as a coot. My Uncle Al comes over. You know, the old man's returned now. He's returned in triumph. Fantastic triumph. And he is sitting there recounting it. And he says, oh, well, he says, you know, I'll tell you how it happened. It was on the second day of the tournament, see. Now, the day before, I've been having a little trouble, see, with the hook. In fact, she was hooking a little strong, and I was, I was going a little bit to the left of the head pin. In fact, I was going a little to the left of the pocket. And I had to correct my approach, see. And uh, you see, he was a very technical bowler, by the way. My father was not a, a backyard, you know, just go out and throw the ball. He was a very serious bowler. And so he says, so I had to correct my approach. So uh, that night, I went back to the bowling alley, and me and, uh, me and Al, and that was one of the guys on the team, he says, me and Al went back, see, and we worked that night. He says, I took two or three hours off, and he says, I finally got my approach going. I was beginning to hit. He said, I didn't know, you know. I, I, I was a little worried about the next day. So I got uh, a lot of sleep, and so I came in late. We were bowling at 5 that night. See, they have these things all very, very highly scheduled. The teams were probably... He says, we were bowling at 5, see, and all these guys are sitting there, leaning forward, listening to every word of my father. Now, I had never known this before in my life. You know, the old man was just the old man, but I had never seen my father as hero. There's a knock on the door. Just a plain knock. My mother, it's the front door, not the back door. See, Heine and, and Zudok and that crowd, they come up the back. There's a knock on the front door. My mother says, oh, excuse me. So she runs out to the front. She figures it's, uh, you know, one of her lady friends. There's a pregnant pause. She says, oh, who, who? Oh, for heaven's sakes, come right in. Of course, I've heard a lot about you. Mr. Rupp. Mr. Rupp, the assistant principal of our school, the Eichmann of the school that I attended. A legendary figure. I never, I never thought of him outside of school. I never knew that he walked around the streets like ordinary people, you know? You know, you can't imagine him taking a shower, doing stuff like ordinary human beings. Here he is. He's got an overcoat. I never saw him with an overcoat. He's got an overcoat and a hat on. See, he has come over to see my father after he bowled a 300 game. There's a knock on the door. He comes in. Oh, and I'm scared, you know. I figured, uh-oh, now what are they going to do, you know? Because they have... <laughs> he, was, he was famous as a truant officer, too, you know. <laughs> I didn't do anything. So, and he says, uh, I, you know, Gene is one of my favorite pupils, you know. I am? 
My mother's looking real proud. Mrs. Bruner's real scared because Mr. Rupp had come over about 27 times to do something about her son, Bruner, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he says, uh, yes, you know, Gene is one of my favorite pupils. And I, I said uh, to him last week, didn't he tell you last week that I'd said that uh, I would certainly be very honored and pleased to meet his father. I've read about him in the paper. See, there's a whole big story in the paper about the old man bowling the 300 game. So uh, with that, my mother says, uh, well, come right in. There is Mr. Rupp with Heine and Zudok with Gertz, the whole crowd. And they're sitting by now. That You know, they've been drinking beer now for 20 minutes. They're telling dirty stories and spitting on the floor and yelling and hollering. And uh, Mr. Rupp is in the middle of that crowd, see? And he says, oh, uh, fellas, uh, uh, my name is, uh, let's call me Adolph. My name is Adolph. And uh, I never knew principals had first names. You know, this is kind of thrills me. And so uh, my old man says, uh, oh, yeah, oh, sit down, eh? He says, take off your coat, for crying out loud. Uh, you mean you worked on her? You, you work with my kid, huh? Well, come on, sit down. Have a beer. And with that, he whips open the thing, and he gives him a can of blue ribbon. He, oh, and now Mr. Rupp is drinking beer. And with that, the old man starts, yeah, it's wild. See? And I can't believe it. So I, 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 I'm standing in the living room. Now I'm scared. See, up to this point, I've been in the kitchen listening to all these guys talk, but now the principal's in there. You know, it's uh, insane. So it's, you know, it must be like some kid, you know, going to some parochial school. All of a sudden, the Pope is sitting in the next room talking to his old man, you know. He doesn't know what to do. So I, I, uh, I go into the living room. See, my mother, she, she says, no, don't, don't you bother the man. Now, they're, they're enjoying themselves. And they're yelling and hollering and they're talking away. And I go out the front and I go down the street and I go to Flick's house. I say, hey, Flick, you know who's in my kitchen? He's Who? I said, you know who's there talking to my father, my old man? He says, who? Mr. Rupp. And he gets white. You should have seen Flick, because, you know, Flick had a lot of trouble with him, see? He gets white. He says, old man Rupp. Old man Rupp is in your kitchen. Oh, man, are you in trouble? I said, no, I'm not in trouble. He's there. He's talking to my father because of the, this crummy bowling game. And he says, really? I said, come on, let's go watch him. So Flick and I go down the street, back to the house. We go into the front steps, up to, up through the living room, and now we're peeking in through the dining room. We can, we can see Rupp sitting there, and now he's on about his third beer. See, and now he's starting to tell dirty stories himself. He says, "I'll tell you guys. You ever hear the one?" He says, "Listen, I want to tell you. Did you ever hear the one about the about the bartender with the with the bow-legged dachshund? Oh, listen, I tell you, I heard this at a convention the other day. We go to this convention, and he's telling the story, and then the old man." Now, listen, you guys. All right, now, we had enough of this talk. He's now, you guys want to hear how I bowl the game? You want to hear how I really bowl the 300 game? And they say, yeah, yeah. By now, there's 25 guys in the, in the kitchen, and in the middle of the kitchen table is this magnificent medal that, you know, was all carved. It's a 300 game in ABC competition. So the old man says, I'll tell you how I bowl this game. The first game up, he says, I'm, I'm bowling in the number four slot on the team, right? He says, the first game up, he says, my first game in the, in, the, in the set, he says, I bowled a 190. He says, I was, I was, I was shading a little. He says, I'm shading a little. He says, and I, and I figured, I figured that, uh, that if, I, if, I, if I corrected my step just a little bit, maybe I may pick up five, ten pins. He says, maybe I, maybe I, he says, it was a, it was a bad game. 
He said, I didn't, you know, he said, funny. He says, I always thought that when I was going to bowl a good game, I would really know it, see. He said, but I wasn't feeling so good. He says, I wasn't just hitting, see. So he says, the second line comes up, okay? He says, now, uh, it was just, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't feeling right. He says, uh, Al before me, he says, Al bowls a real great. He, I think he knocked, he picked up 240, something like that. He says, well, I picked up my ball. He said, you know, a very funny thing happened. He said, uh, I have been messing around with Bernie's ball. Bernie was one of his teammates. He says, and between games, I picked up Bernie's ball, and I have a little bit. And he says, I was talking to Bernie about uh, how it was drilled. And he said, I was feeding the ball. And he says, I, I picked up Bernie's ball, and Bernie's ball was tight for me. And he says, you know, I, I, I messed around with it, and he says, I felt like I pulled a muscle or something in my thumb. He said, boy, I really, I really gave it a, give it a whack. And he said, and so uh, I put the ball down, I went back, and he says, I put some... I put some Sloan's liniment on my thumb. The old man, by the way, believed in Sloan's liniment the way other people say believe in uh, oh, uh, yogiism or uh, maybe Vishnu. Uh, to him, it was a mystical quantity. You ever hear of Sloan's liniment? You ever heard of it? Did I ever tell you about the guy once in our neighborhood who drank a bottle of it once? Holy smokes, I want to tell you. You never heard more yelling and hollering. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> I don't want to bring into that. But uh, he took this Sloan's liniment, saying he always carried this bowling bag. So he put some Sloan's liniment on his thumb. He rubbed it down. So, he, so I rubbed my, my thumb down with Sloan's liniment. He said, no, I don't know what it had anything to do with it. He said, but that's what happened, see? And they're all leaning forward, listening to this thing. It's like, if you can imagine, it would be almost like uh, Tom Seaver sitting there telling the guys, how he set down the Baltimore Orioles in the key game of the World Series. Man, they're going to listen, right? They're going to listen to every word. And so he says, I took the thumb, see? And he holds his thumb up, and everybody is looking at the thumb. Holds it up. He says, well, I'm bowling forth. I pick up my own ball. And he said, you know, I, I like to use a little talcum powder. He says, I don't like the chalk. He said, I picked up a little talcum. I put it on my thumb. And he says, I went up to the, I, I, I went up to the, to the approach line. And he said, I felt, I felt, I felt like I was a little bit off. And he said, and I laid the, I laid the ball down, and I'm right in the slot on the first ball. It was a strike. He said, well, you know, I figured, okay. He says, it was a clean strike. What's the matter, you guys? Don't worry about the time. It's all right. Just, 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 well, don't worry about it. It was a clean strike, see? So then he says, I pick up the ball on my next frame. So I, I make my approach. He said, I did not feel right. He said, I want you guys to understand that. And they're all listening, see? I didn't feel right yet. I got a strike in a second frame. I got a double now. He says, well, then I get a strike and a third. He says, now I got three strikes going. I got a turkey. Everybody's leaning forward, rubbed the whole crowd. He says, now I got four. He says, well, you know, after all, he says, uh, I've, I've uh, this, you know, this is, uh, I'm still not thinking much about it. But by the eighth frame, he says, I have eight straight strikes now. And I'm still not feeling good. I'm not feeling like I'm in the slot. But I got eight strikes. He said, I'll tell you a funny one about the, about the sixth one. He says, I'm going to tell you, that was awful thin. 
Oh, man, he said, I cut that head pin so thin. He said, I figured, you know, it's going to be a cherry split. But he said, no. He said, that, that, uh, I got a good bounce, and that was it. Now I got eight straight. He said, well, you know, the guys on the next alley started to watch. He said, I got eight now. I picked up the ball on the ninth one. He said, but then I'm beginning to feel, he said, I'm beginning to feel a little funny. He says, you know. I'm beginning to feel a little funny. He said, well, I come up, I come up on that, that approach. And he says, you know, I'll never forget. He said, I hit my ankle on the approach. Well, you know, this is bad news. He said, I hit my ankle. And he said, but before, he said, I was committed. See, I was committed. I couldn't pull it back. He said, I laid that ball down. It was as pretty a hook as you ever saw. Right in that pocket, he said, zap. Well, now it is it. He says, I got one pin to go. I got one strike to go. And they're all sitting there, see, every guy leaning forward. And me and Flick in the living room there looking in there, see, because we don't go, we don't want to go near that, see, because Mr. Rupp is in there. And Heine Gertz is sitting there. He's got that can of beer. My old man's got, he's, he's got that metal sitting on the kitchen table shining away there. And he's showing him his thumb. They're all leaning there. You could smell the beer. They got 25 bottles of beer open now. Bruner's now laying on the floor under the icebox, you know, the whole bit. And then the old man says, well, Bernie come up to me. And Bernie says, look, don't let it get you if you split. He said, because that's the way this game is. He says, it was quiet. It's the guys on the next alley stopped bowling. Well, you know, when you're going on a 300 game, they do that. He says, and you know, it was funny. He says, there was hardly anybody at that session. He said, because the big session that, you know, the crowds that come to watch him bowl, he said, they come at night. He said, it was about quarter to six now. It's one of the off shifts. He said, well, my ball came back on the return alley. I picked it up. And he says, I looked down at my thumb. I figured, well, maybe I better put a little talcum. He says, something told me no. Don't put no more talcum powder on it. He says, well, I figured, what the hell? Picked up the ball. He says, I didn't even worry. I just I just, just went into my, my, my straight approach. You've seen me bowl. All these guys, yeah, 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 yeah. He says, I go into my straight approach. I just laid it down. He said, I didn't even watch. I turned around, and he says, I'm walking back to the seat. He said, I just turned around. I don't even want to see it. And I hear, bap. I knew I had it. And he says, you should have seen that place go. And they're all leaning forward. He says, well, after that, he says, uh, the second game, he says, you know, it was the second game. He says, bowl the three. And he says, you know, you can't, what are you going to do to top that? He said, uh, Next game wasn't much. I think it was 240, 245. <laughs> That's the way to vote my bowl. You know, he says, after all, it was a letdown. And Mr. Rupp got up. Heine Gertz's eyes were shining like two great big silver dollars. And the metal is sitting there in the middle of the kitchen table and gleaming under that kitchen light. And my mother is standing there proudly over there making up the spaghetti and she's getting ready to serve the whole crowd spaghetti and meatballs and crackers and beer, you know, the whole bit. Mr. Rupp takes my old man's hand right in front of me. And he says, it's a pleasure to meet a really great man. No, Mrs. Nothing. He said, I want to tell you, he says, uh, 
My kid tells me you have trouble with your slice, your hook. He says, well, I'm afraid you're sliding. He says, remember, the game is bowling. It is not throwing. They would call it throwing if they meant to throw. The game is bowling. Mr. Rupp says, I'll remember that, sir. My father says, anytime you want to talk about bowling, you just give me a call. From that day on, my father was on a very different plane. <laughs> on a very... And I want to tell you this. Every time I went bowling with him after that, I listened real good when he talked about putting that hook in the right place. When he talked about that approach. When he would say, ah, 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 there you go now, there you go, you're taking that skip step again. That's for ladies. You want to be a bowler, don't you? Not a thrower, right? W.O.R. New York.